All right. Uh, welcome everybody to House Highlights, our uh, our second of uh, hopefully an ongoing series of conversations with my colleagues in Annapolis about the amazing work that they do year in, year out, every day of the year. Um, today we have with us uh, uh, Vanessa Atterbury, uh, who's a neighbor of mine, I guess, right across the county line. Um, I'm from Montgomery County, of course, and Vanessa represents Howard County. Um, she's also uh, the vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which handles, you know, frankly, I'll say this, never having served on that committee, one of the toughest issues in Annapolis. And, and uh, I thank God every day that Vanessa and Chairman Clippinger and others on that committee are taking care of that work. Um, and, uh, and also now chair of the um, uh, work group on police reform and accountability. Uh, which is addressing, you know, one of the most important issues that we're talking about as a, as a country right now. Uh, I, I also told Vanessa, Vanessa, you're very lucky that you weren't with me last week in the technical disaster that Delegate Stewart and I experienced trying to get this working. So this seems to be working so far. It's a miracle. Um, but so, Vanessa, welcome. Delegate Adder. Thank you. Um, let's start out. I'm just uh, share with the folks that are joining us and watching a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? What you know? What do you do outside of the legislature? How did you end up in the legislature? So thank you for having me on House Highlights. I love that you're doing this. Um, so I was born and raised in Howard County. Uh, I'm back in Howard County. Uh, you know, and some others know that I did have a nice little stint in Montgomery County um, after I graduated law school. Uh, I decided first I actually wanted to move to the city. My parents were like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, so I ended up in downtown Silver Spring uh, for a while. Those were my single kids free days. Um, and I had my first child in Montgomery County at Holy Cross Hospital. Uh, and then when I was pregnant with my second son, uh, I, I moved back to Howard County in the district where I uh, was, was born and raised. So I'm very, very lucky to have gotten elected out here. Uh, my family's out here, my parents, my father has his own business um, where that's where I work in my, my other life as corporate counsel um, to a company. We do uh, workforce development. So we do a lot of job training, job placement, making sure that folks who receive government assistance can take care of their families. Um, and so that's what we do all across uh, the country from the West Coast to the East Coast. Um, and uh, so my parents are out here, my brother, my niece and nephew. So it's just great to be out here. And I was very, very lucky to serve my first four years. So first elected in 2014 with a very good friend of mine, mentor, um, been for a short stint, uh, colleague, delegate who you know, uh, Frank Turner, who served on uh, Ways and Means um, for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I miss Frank. He was he was one of my favorite people in the house. So. <laughs> he still well, chimes in with texts and calls and telling me, you know, what we should be doing. I'm sure I hear him on podcasts periodically. <laughs> he, he, he was on... Um, uh, what, what is it? The podcast that Tom Cole does. It's so good. Yeah. 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 Elevate Maryland. Yes, yes, yes. Uh -huh. Um, and yeah, I love that podcast and Frank was on it and uh -huh. I, you know, I was listening the whole time. Like I miss you. Can you come yeah. back? Frank's awesome. So you, you got elected in 2014. When did you become vice chair? Was it two years ago? Yes. So at the beginning, I, I, well, at the end of the first term, so then um, Speaker Bush, who passed away, who we mysteriously appointed me before he passed. And so I started serving um, during the interim and at the beginning of this term. 
So that's like uh, that. I mean, excuse me for saying so. That's like a meteoric rise, right? <laughs> like kind of well, that quickly you. be vice. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I hope it's due to hard work and my commitment to the committee. Like you mentioned judiciary, people were like, don't go there, don't go there. You don't want to go to judiciary. I requested to be on judiciary. Um, I love it. The issues that we deal with, I'm passionate about. Um, it's also, it was also, you know, luck and opportunity. So um, I'm, I'm fortunate that Chair Clippinger and I were able to start at the same time because I really feel like we're a team and I really feel like we reinvented um, uh, the committee. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's good. Does it, I mean, does it feel weird having, I mean, because, you know, I, I, I don't know if you had this experience, like it's a very different experience being in a leadership position than it is as, as a backbencher. Um, how's, how's that been for you? It's definitely different. Um, before where I could just focus on my legislation, uh, I really have to focus on everything that the committee is doing. I really have to be familiar with everything the committee's doing. Chair Clippinger is great at bringing me in on um, decisions and talking through things related to legislation that's coming through the committee. Um, so it, it is a lot more work <laughs> and yeah. a lot more responsibility. Um, and also just in terms of structuring the committee, I remember uh, Chair Clippinger came out to Howard County, one of my favorite places, the Stanford Grill, um, and we sat down and we had a handshake in a meeting and uh, we probably hugged it out and um, we just sat down and talked through how we wanted the committee to go and how we wanted it to function. I mean, just simple things that other committees take for granted, like sub-functioning subcommittees right. <laughs> and actually doing that because we hadn't done that. Um, my first four years there. So it's really, it's really been a great place to be. That's great. That's, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it has a very different feel as a committee, although I still, I try not to introduce bills that end up in judiciary just on principle, but, but <laughs> it is a very different place than it used to be. So, um, you know, you're kind of at the center of this conversation that's going on uh, about policing reform. And, and actually, I mean, it's not a new issue, right? I mean, you all have been discussing policing reform issues in your committee for a while, but you know, it's it really it feels like it's come to a head this year in particular with uh, the protests over uh, the murders of George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor and and the the marches that that were all over the country. I wonder. I mean, before we get into the details of policing reform, what are your thoughts on on kind of this moment on where we're at as a country, as a state, and in, in in responding to this issue? I think this is a critical moment, and I think that it this is our point point in time for our generation to seize this moment and to really do something about police reform because this moment isn't gonna be here for forever, right? I, and I, I think about this and I think, you know, I don't know how long I'm gonna be in the legislature and all of that, but this is, you know, possibly the most important thing that I will do when I'm down here. And I say that as an African-American woman, as, you know, I'm raising three African-American kids, two of whom are boys, and we can't even say that this issue just affects boys because we unfortunately have the Breonna Taylors and the Sandra Blands. Um, so, I, you know, I, I worry about that. And, and that is something, and if you're living in this country as a black and brown individual, like I wake up thinking about these things with, with, my, with my kids, right? My oldest son, he's eight, he's big. He looks like he should be in eighth grade, but he's in third grade. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and, and everyone's like, wow, he's so big and this and that, and he's athletic. And then my dad looks at me, he's like, that's gonna be a problem, you know, because you know, he might run into an officer who thinks he's older than he is, doesn't understand his response. 
um, who thinks he might not be able to handle him because he's 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 big. So you know, it's just something that you know if you're not brown or black i think you you take for granted and you don't have to think about these things but these are daily thoughts and particularly now uh, i started having conversations i think ab about race and police and individuals with my boys my daughter wasn't born yet uh, when trayvon martin happened and i think then uh you know they might have been three and four since the pandemic since we've been locked down in march i have had more conversations with my two boys about what happens when you interact with the police, um, how you should behave, how you should behave and how you should dress. You know, they love to wear hoodies and sweats. And I'm like, you always have to present yourself well. You always have to, you know, put your best foot forward, talk appropriately, um, you know, because people might judge you and might treat you differently, not that they should. Um, and, and, you know, my kids ask questions, why do the police shoot, um, you know, black people, you know, I get those questions in my house, but I also come from a family where my, my 91 year old grandmother, who's still um, here, my maternal grandmother, she was a sheriff in the Wayne County Police Department out in outside of Detroit, Michigan. So I also have that that viewpoint when I'm when I'm looking at this issue. But I think this is this is our moment in time to deal with this issue. It has come to just the ultimate head. And we, and we have to do something about it. And we have to do something about it here in Maryland. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to me as, and I, I don't know how much, because look, these, these, these types of situations have existed for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Not as long as the United States has existed, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like people, certainly people who are, you know, white like me, who don't live this, right? Like, I don't have to have that same conversation with my sons, right? Um, so I don't experience it, right? Like, so the, the fact that cell phone video is so much more common now that, you know, we're seeing videos of this stuff on the internet um, makes it more visceral and real. And I feel like that, I hope that that's kind of changing perceptions a little bit. And it's- I think it is, yeah. I think that is. And I think that the fact that we're seeing it on social media so frequently, because mm -hmm. um, like you said, this has been going on for, for decades. Right, but it people more and more people who have not had to be aware of it are becoming aware of it, and so I, I think it's it's just coming to a head. Right. Well, I mean, I, I at long last, right? At long mm -hmm. last, let's let's fix this. So um, you're chairing the work group on police reform and accountability. Can you tell us a little bit about what the work group's doing, what the process is, what the end goal is? So yeah, I was just completely humbled that uh, Speaker Jones appointed me chair of the work group. Uh, absolutely no pressure. Uh, after that happened, my mother who pays attention to, to like everything was calling me, you, you can't mess this up, Vanessa, you cannot mess this up. Um, and so uh, we have 13, 13 members on the work group and we have a very specific charge. And I like to tell people that, you know, the work group was formed after the murder of George Floyd, but the speaker was committed to doing this work group before that. Like you said, we had police issues that came before us in judiciary last session. Um, session was cut short 20 days early because of the pandemic. Um, and so we did, we just didn't get to a lot of things. Um, and so she, she did this work group and we're specifically looking at four things. 
Uh, I think sometimes people want to make it larger than what we're supposed to look at. Um, but we're looking at um, policies and procedures related to the police officers law enforcement uh, bill of rights and whether or not we should repeal it, whether or not we should tweak it. Um, we're looking at whether or not we should have a uniform um, policy as it relates to the use of force. We're looking at whether or not everyone in the state of Maryland should use body cameras right now because they don't. Um, and then finally, we're looking at whether or not there should be independent investigation and prosecution when it comes to excessive use of force and um, you know, death as a result of a police interaction. Um, so those are the very four specific things that we are looking at. We're gonna make recommendations that will in fact turn into legislation um, for the 2021 session. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, let's dig into this a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, you know, we see this acronym thrown around LEOBER, right? The Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Can you, because uh, I think unless you're sort of deep in a criminal justice policy, it's just an acronym. So what 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 is this LEOBER? What it, what does it do? And, and why are there conversations about, about reforming or repealing it? So you know what, I think a lot of times people get um, confused and it, it's, it is kind of hard to understand. So you have two things that could happen when you have um, a police use of force. You could have criminal charges, but you can also have administrative um, actions that happen to the officer that's based off of a complaint from a citizen. The complaint could be anything from there was excessive use of force to verbal abuse, um, harassment, uh, anything. And it's also discipline related to they're not wearing their uniform properly. Um, so, or, you know, they're coming into work late. So when we talk about the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, we are strictly talking about administrative practices within the police departments and how the chiefs and sheriffs discipline, the state troopers discipline their officers. Um, and so we are one, I believe it's 15, um, states that have it. It did start right here in the state of Maryland. And I think a lot of people feel that it's not a transparent process. Um, when a complaint is filed, uh, there's no transparency as to the follow-up of that process. The investigation is the officer, um, uh, you know, turning over certain documents. Are they responding properly when interrogated? The time of, of the interrogation. Um, so I think because of that, a lot of citizens um, are calling for the repeal. And we see that nationally in the states that have it. Um, I certainly think that uh, repealing it or changing it will go a long way towards the fair discipline of minority officers, fair discipline of brown and black and female officers who um, are disciplined more harshly, more regularly and more severely than their counterpart officers. Um, but I, I think the things that will have the biggest impact uh, here in the state of Maryland is when we when we talk about the use of force and those types of things of what uh, officers can and cannot do. So um, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, or LEOBRA, Leobra, Leobra um, is is an administrative internal process. Okay, and so you're also talking about these these use of force issues. What's what's that conversation been like? So here in Maryland, we do not have a uniform use of force policy statute that applies to the entire state. So the problem with that is we have 148 different police departments. So, you know, you've got Baltimore City, you've got the counties, you've got the 
Gaithersburg, Hyattsville, you've got the colleges, the universities. So when you add all these up, you have essentially 148 departments that could possibly be doing different things. Um, and so in 2016, right after I was elected for the first time, that was on the heels of Freddie Gray. And we did have a police accountability work group at the time. It was a joint work group with the Senate. And we did do some good things. Um, we mandated that the MPTC, the Maryland Police Training Commission, come up with best practices for the use of force. And they did, uh, related to de-escalation training, duty to intervene, chokeholds, all these things that we're seeing now. Um, but what we didn't get done was say, it need, everybody has to do it, it's mandated. So the question now is, okay, well, what are all the different police departments doing? Is everybody on the same page? You know, here in Howard County, um, we could be doing best practices, but what are they doing on the shore? And I'm just using these as examples. Um, so not everyone's on the same page. And, I, and I, I think the work group believes that everybody should be on the same page. Cause also, you know, you got people traveling throughout the state between different jurisdictions and, and citizens should know what should be expected. Well, yeah, and, and officers that move from one department to another and having to learn a whole new set of use of force limits. I mean, that must be you know difficult for an officer who's moving around. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, recently was talking to a delegate from Prince George's County and they have this exact problem when they have Prince George's County officers respond, you know, Hyattsville officers respond or from another jurisdiction and they're all responding to the same incident, but not everybody's on the same page of how to respond and, and what to do and who's in charge and, you know, what policies do we follow? So I think it is appropriate for everybody to be on the same page when it comes to use of force. And when we talk use of force, we're talking about all these things, um, you know, should we ban chokeholds? Should we mandate a duty to intervene? Should we say you can't shoot at a moving vehicle unless somebody's life is in imminent um, harm? We're talking about all of those things fall under the use of force. So yeah, these issues, you're, you're continuing to talk about them in the work group. Um, you you uh, just had a meeting, I think, last week, right? Yes, yes. And, and the plan is to continue meeting throughout the fall and then come up with recommendations before session? Yeah, so so far we met with the Maryland Police Training Commission. Um, we met with um, some national folks, um, so not specifically related to Maryland, but so we could get a national perspective of some best practices. So that group included the co-chair of um, President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force that he did. Um, it included uh, someone that we all follow on Twitter and social media, Sam Singyawe, um, who's a young progressive and is really active in this, in this arena, and a couple of other folks. Uh, we met, we had a briefing with the chiefs and sheriffs, the FOP, Fraternal Order of Police, the state troopers, and um, so they gave us their perspective. Um, and last week we met with the Maryland State's Attorneys Association and the Office of the Public Defender, uh, focus, focusing specifically on who should investigate, right? So because we have all these different jurisdictions, the problem is the investigation that State's Attorney McCarthy might take or State's Attorney Rich Gibson in Howard County might take is different than what actually happened here in Maryland um, on, on the shore when we're talking about Anton Black, um, you know, who, who was killed at the hands of police and that State's Attorney decided not to prosecute. So the question is, is the relationship between the police and the prosecutor's office one that's too close that we can't have an unbiased or seemingly transparent process, um, 
that's fair. So the question is, should that be sent out to a completely independent agency, a completely independent unit to investigate like the um, uh, Maryland troopers um, to handle that when it comes to certain offenses like when there's been a death uh, mm -hmm. or excessive force or a sexual assault. Right. Um, so uh, the work group's gonna, gonna sort through those things as well. That's great. Uh, and the these meetings are all public, right? Um, all the meetings are public. I urge anyone who's interested in the topic to go to the Maryland General Assembly website. You can click on uh, the police work group um, link, which is, I think you click on the house committees and then click on the police committee uh, work group link. All of the, the work groups and testimony, any documents we've received, they're all up there on the, on the web. On October 1st, we are, it will be live and we, we're not having anyone present, but you'll hear us start to debate on the recommendations that we're gonna present um, beginning mid-October to the speaker. That's great. I'll throw, uh, I'll throw a, a link to, to the work groups page on the, on the General Assembly website in the comments on, on Facebook so people can click on it. That, that's fantastic. So uh, October 1st, uh, tune in. I'm gonna be tuning in. <laughs> to the discussion. Yeah, that should be interesting. Um, we've decided to try to close these with a series of fun Maryland questions and okay. these quickly. You can't think about them. Oh so, my gosh. Okay. So I'm just going to throw a question at you. There's, there's three of them. Um, so the first one, what is your favorite Maryland place? My favorite Maryland place. Well, I, I would have to say Howard County, but like a specific place. I, my parents have a lovely place on the Bay. That's like you're vacationing. It just immediately takes all the stress away. Um, so right now, that's that's my favorite place. Um, but Howard County is full of different, you know, parks and and other wonderful, uh, you know, things to visit. Yeah. Hey, my first date with my wife was at Centennial Park. So was it really? <laughs> County, yeah. <laughs> um, your favorite Maryland food. Oh, I'm completely addicted to uh, crab uh, uh, crab chips. I eat them like the entire summer. It's so bad. I just buy two at a time and no one else in the house eats them but me. So that's really bad, but I'm addicted to the, addicted to crab chips. I feel bad for people in the rest of the country that don't have access to us. I know, <laughs> I know. Must be awful. <laughs> All right, last question. Your favorite pop culture thing related to Maryland could be movie, music, book, you know, fashion item, I don't know, whatever. So interestingly, so I, I love to tie things to my county. So interestingly enough, um, Edward Norton is from uh, Columbia and there is uh, Boondocks, the gentleman that wrote the Boondocks, um, Boondocks uh, cartoon comic is from Columbia. And then there's a um, comic that's on Cartoon Network now um, okay, KO. If you have like you know young kids, you might know what this. And it's it's written by a gentleman who uh, is from Columbia, and it's you know he's got Route 175 on there. Um, he's got you know the our villages, shopping centers. Um, so I just find that interesting because. But, you know, wait, but hold on, Vanessa. I asked you which one was your. Favorite. Oh, my bad. <laughs> my bad. Well, those three. Okay, you, you cheated, but we'll take it. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to talk. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Of course, and, uh, and have a great rest of your week. Thanks, you too. See ya.